very high expectations put on leadership of the church. Um, overseers are to be of a very, very high character. And last week during uh, our Sunday evening men's Bible study, uh, we, we discussed that quite a bit. And uh, one, one individual described it as uh, aggressive agreement, I think is how he put it. There, there was some, some discussion, some debate. It was, it was good. Um, there's, there might be a little bit of, of difference about the specifics, but the overall conclusion was that this position of overseer requires a very, very high level of um, character, and that person had to be not only a follower of Christ, but a very close follower of Christ, someone who, who loves God's word, studies God's word, and is able to share that with others. Well, today, we're going to be moving to the next section that deals with the idea of deacons. And it's going to be very similar in the way that we look at this. Um, we're going to go ahead and read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. And then we're going to start talking about it. So, starting off in verse 8, it says, Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons, if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife, and good managers of their children and their own household. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standard, and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dearly Father, Lord, as we study your word, as we dig into it, I pray that you would challenge us with it. Lord, help us to become more like Christ, more like who you want us to be because of being here. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for men who are willing to serve this church and to serve you. I pray that we would all be willing to do whatever it is that you desire of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, the first question that comes up is, what is a deacon? So, I'm going to ask you, what, when I, when I use that word, when I use that phrase, what comes to mind as a deacon? Okay, ones who serve the church. A role model, Okay. The guy that has the keys. Okay. Okay. I can understand that one. Any others? An old guy? Okay. Fair enough? No. No. <laughs> Jim doesn't think so. <laughs> well, I think, you know, commonly in, in what I term as Baptistic churches... Um, or, or who follow that historical Baptist type ideas, this term is frequently used as the overseer, as the elder, as the ones who are in charge. That's the kind of church that I grew up in. We had one pastor and a deacon board or a group of men that we referred to as deacons, but they did a lot more of the leadership and the oversight than necessarily uh, what it is to be a deacon. 
Um, currently, that actually is how our deacons are functioning. Um, our deacons are in the leadership. They are doing that position of overseer because of the way that our constitution is set up. We don't have a plurality of elders, so those men have stepped into that role. This is okay, but it's not ideal. It's not what we desire. And so we're going to be digging into this idea of what is a deacon, and then what does it take to be a deacon? Now, obviously, we need to understand what that word is, first of all. And so, I'm waiting on you, Mark. Okay. <laughs> and so, I, I have uh, referenced and teased a few times about doing sword drills. We're going to do it. Um, <clears throat> What I'm going to ask, now I know this is unusual, a little bit different, but what I'm going to ask is that you go ahead and uh, find these, and whoever finds it and is willing, stand up in a loud and thunderous voice, read it out, okay? It's only one verse, so it's nice and short. It's not going to be that hard, but I would encourage you, find it as fast as you can. We can even pit the uh, technology versus the, the good old paper books if you want to and see which one wins. Um, now, I, I, love, I love giving out candy when I do sword drills. I'm not going to. But if any of the kids get there first and read it loud, I do have some uh, Tootsie Rolls in my office. Just saying. So, <clears throat> first one, first one, if you would, is in Matthew chapter 20, verse 26. Matthew 20, 26. Go ahead. I'm not doing the official sword drill where you have to hold it up. Just All right, go ahead and read it out. Okay, that word servant is the same one as this idea of deacon. So whoever wants to be great must be a servant, must be a deacon. All right, the next one is Matthew 23, verse 11. I will give you a clue. These do kind of come in order, so. Matthew 23, verse 11. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? <clears throat> All right, the next one is in Mark chapter 9, verse 35. Okay. Whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all. Are we getting a theme? Getting a, uh, an idea of this a little bit? The next one is Mark chapter 10, verse 43. Mark 10, 43. <clears throat> okay. Whoever wishes to be great will become your servant. Now, we are going to return to this one, so if you have a bookmark or something, you might hold it there. But um, the next one is John chapter 2 and verse 5. Okay, this one takes a little bit of a, a different, it's the same word, that, that idea of deacon, diakonos, or servant, but it takes a little bit of a different view because it's, it's speaking to servants. Whatever he says, do it. 
All right, the next one is John chapter 12, verse 26. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. John twelve twenty six. No, that was twenty five. Uh, just, just keep going. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. All right. Romans chapter 13, verse 4. We've only got a couple more of these. But in Romans 13, verse 4. All right. That word minister is the same word. It's the same idea. And and here it's referring in a secular sense towards government and towards those that are put into authority, but the idea is that they are also servants of God for a for a particular purpose or reason. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. Apollos. Okay. So what is Paul? What is Apollos? They're only servants as the Lord has assigned them their tasks. <clears throat> One more. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Second <clears throat> Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6. Go ahead, Dennis. I'm picking on you today. And then if everyone would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, I will read this one, but Ephesians 3 verses 6 through 13, and this one's actually going to come up again in a little bit, Um, but I will read it, and then I want to know, what what are the ideas of a servant that you've seen from these various passages? So Ephesians chapter 3 verses 6 through 13. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light What is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places? 
This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Paul himself calls himself a minister or a a servant. And he's at this point in prison. He's having difficulties. That last verse says, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. So all that I've done so far is looked up the word in a Strong's, pulled some of those verses. This is something you guys can do. I, I would encourage you to. But what do we learn about this idea of a deacon or a servant from the passages that we've looked at? Okay, they are God's servant. They, they don't stand on their own. They're, they are responsible to somebody else. Okay? Anything else stand out? Okay, they're to be an example to others. Okay? Go ahead. Just a servant in general. Okay. They don't do it for the fame. They don't do it to get accolades to themselves. They do it because that's who they are. Now, in do what? For the glory of God, yeah. Now, in the Bible, there are two words that are often translated servant. One is doulos, and that's like a bond slave, someone that's owned, and thus they serve. The other is diakonos, or where we get deacon, and that's someone who serves, not necessarily out of ownership, but because that's their duty, that's their job, that's, that's who they are. Um, a great example that we have today is if you ever go into a restaurant, a sit-down restaurant, and somebody comes over to you, what can I get for you? Well, they are your server, right? They are a servant. That's a, a great example that we can then put into our, our minds. And so what, what do they do when they serve? Well, they, they check what you want, and then they go get it from the kitchen for you, but then they often will stand to the side and, and watch And in my opinion, the best servers at restaurants are the ones who see that when my my glass is getting close to the bottom, they come and refill it. And it's getting close, and they they automatically just refill it. Maybe that's just my personal opinion, but a server who makes sure that my, my drinking glass is never empty, that's a good servant. Well, in God's economy, in God's view, from these passages, we've seen a few things. First of all, the servant, the lowest in God's eyes, is the greatest. That's what a couple of the first ones we're talking about. If you want to be great, you must be the servant to all. Um, The servant obeys the master and does the master's will. He doesn't just do whatever it is that he wants to do. He does what the master tells him. The servant neither deserves nor expects recognition for what they do. They do it because that's who they are. That's what they are supposed to do. They don't do it to get fame and accolades or anything like that. Uh, The term itself conveys the idea of an assistant or a helper, a servant. Namely, when we get back to 1 Timothy, which is where we're going next, so you can... Hang on, I got one more verse and then we'll we'll look there. When we get back to 1 Timothy, uh, namely this idea of a servant is a servant of the church, to the church. Um, An assistant, and I would say just a practical helper of the overseers. So the idea, once we get back to 1 Timothy, is that the overseers are in leadership, they make decisions, they guide, they do all of that, and then the deacons 
serve the church and help and assist in that process. Before we get there, I do have one more uh, passage I want to take a look at in Mark. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. These give us an attitude of a servant. I'm in John, not Mark. Mark chapter 10, verses... Okay, I, yeah, I don't know if anybody actually read from a, from a, maybe, maybe everybody just has one of these, I'm not sure, but one way or another, thank you for playing along in uh, sword drills this morning. Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 45, uh, Jesus calls his disciples to himself. It says, in calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many." The best example of what a servant is, is Christ himself. And as you look through the Gospels and you see the attitude and you see the way that Christ functions, that's the idea of a servant. And Christ even calls himself a servant. He came for that reason, for that purpose. So, I would encourage you to bear all of that in mind as we go back to First uh, Timothy. In general, this term deacon is used of a minister or a servant, um, someone who, who does some of those things. I think as we dig into 1 Timothy, we're going to see two aspects of what it is to be a servant. Uh, on one side is an official position, and on the other is kind of a practical um, service and the things that they do and the way that they, they function. Um, so, just like last week, if you look at this list and you say to yourself, well, I'm never going to be able to be in that position, I'm, I'm never going to be qualified, don't get ahead of yourself. There is a just straight up practical nature to what's being talked about, what's being looked at in this, and these are attitudes and ways that every follower of Christ ought to be functioning. So, back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> Verse 8. Again, it starts off, deacons likewise must be certain things. Well, likewise, what, what is that talking about? Um, since we know what a deacon, what it means to be a deacon, what are they supposed to be like? In the same way as is the idea here. And I would contest that it's pointing back to what we've already been covering. This idea that if an overseer desires this position, that's a good thing. It's a good work that they desire. In the same way, if someone wants to be a deacon, that's a good thing. It's good work that they desire. As the overseers have to have high qualifications, in the same way, deacons have high expectations, high qualifications that we must uh, look at. 
It's a desirable, good work, and it's required that they be upstanding, responsible, godly individuals. We're going to be looking through this, this listing of specifically what those are. But in the same way as what we've been looking at, that's what's expected of these guys. So first of all, it says that they must be men of dignity. Well, dignity deals with their character, just in general. Uh, they're to be honest, grave, worthy of respect. Now, as I was digging into this word, I, th- I thought it was kind of interesting. It is associated with the idea of reverend, or that you can respect them. And so, as a result, uh, I found it interesting, maybe it's just me, but a lot of people try and call pastors reverend, but scripturally, they're actually saying that the deacons are to be ones worthy of reverence. Now, no, I'm not saying that we need to start calling Bob Reverend Bob, or, or Reverend Jim, or Reverend Mark. Maybe Reverend John if he, uh, no, 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 not really. We, we don't need to use that term. But the idea is that they should be worthy of respect. That's what this, this men of dignity is about. Next comes, they should not be double-tongued. Now, this one was an interesting one to me. If you, if you did do some pre-study and start digging into this, um, the word is only used once in the Bible, very rarely even in, in Greek writing. It's an unusual term. Um, and so it's, there's, there's a little bit of disagreement about exactly how to understand it. Um, it could refer to the idea of not saying one thing in one place and saying something different in another. That's, that's a very good possibility. And men who are in this position, deacons, servants of the church, shouldn't say one thing in church and say something else when they're outside. Very wise. The other option is uh, repeating things that they shouldn't be repeating. And so the possibility then is in 1 Timothy, this idea of the false doctrine that's being proclaimed, that these men aren't repeating false doctrine. Um, It's also possible that these men would hear certain things and not go about being gossips and telling other things. So I, I'm not necessarily sure which one, because the, the phrase is so rarely used, but either way, the things that, they, that come out of their mouth needs to be appropriate and accurate to what God expects. So as I was reading this, I don't know if you guys do this, but when I read through, a lot of other verses and scriptures start popping to my mind. And one of the first ones that popped to my mind on this one was James chapter 3. If you haven't noticed, we're going to be jumping around quite a bit uh, this morning. That's okay. In James chapter 3, we get an idea of what God expects of our tongues, of the way that we speak. James chapter 3, verses 8 through 10 says, No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord, the Father. With it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. That's the idea of double-tongued. So deacons, men of the church, men who serve the church, need to not be double-tongued. The next one is not addicted to much wine. Now, in the last section, the, the English version says that overseers are not to be addicted to wine, and here it says not addicted to much wine, which 
is an interesting little difference. Um, it actually is two different words that are in play and in use, so there's a little bit more of a distinction. In the first, last week, it's not lingering long over the wine, not searching it out, not, not spending time with it. This one has more of an a idea of not searching for or being controlled by wine or alcohol, which I would contest. Ultimately, we're not supposed to be under the control of any substance, whether it's alcohol, tobacco, drugs, coffee, soda. I know, I'm getting a little close to home for Isaac. I love my coffee, but am I controlled by it? Am I allowing these substances to dictate what I do? That's a problem. Scripturally, we, we have an issue with that. Now, I would, I would not say that this is uh, proclaiming a teetotaler mindset as much as, like I mentioned last week, you're playing with fire. You've got to be really careful with whatever the substances are. Even, we're, eventually we're going to get into, I believe it's chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, um, we'll, we'll deal with even medically. There are times when medically we use certain substances, but we need to be very careful that they do not control us. And so that's, that's the idea that's um, being looked at here, is not addicted to or so intensely focused on wine, alcohol, that you aren't clear thinking, that you aren't functioning, that you aren't doing what God wants you to be doing. Um, personally, I, I found that if I say I need something, then I really need to pause and think about, okay, I need a cup of coffee. I need a hamburger. I need a fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is. I would encourage you to just kind of pause and think through, okay, why am I saying that I need this? Does it control me? Or am I just saying, well, I, I really, really would like a cup of coffee. Okay, that's fine. Enjoy your cup of coffee. I'm not, I'm not bashing coffee. I drink lots of it. But that's the idea at play here is, is it controlling you? The next one that comes up then is not fond of sordid gain. Um, this is an interesting um, English phrasing, but last week we looked at the idea of not a lover of silver, right? Greedy for base gain. Again, here the idea is not under the control of money, not so focused on money that whatever you do, you're doing it to get you know financial gain. Instead, we need to be doing things because that's what God wants us to be doing. We need to be doing it for a different reason, for a different purpose. Um, interestingly, in Titus chapter 1, when it's dealing with the qualifications of an overseer and of an elder there, it uses this exact same phrase. So I think that it's, it's significant because it's the same for both. And I, I think as we dig through this, and you look at the list of overseers, and you look at the list of deacons, you find that there's a lot of parallels. Now, they're not exactly the same. I'm not saying that they are, but there's a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities. Um, the main difference is, that I've noticed is that the elder, the overseer, must be able to teach. Their job is to proclaim the word of God, to teach others the word of God. The deacon, the servant, doesn't have that same teaching role. But beyond that, we find that no matter what their position is, if they're in a, an official position within the church, they need to have high moral character. They need to be an upstanding Christian, a follower of Christ that is without reproach. We're actually going to see in a little bit. 
Now, it is easy to put somebody up on a pedestal and say, well, I, I could never be like that. I mean, you know, I, I look at them and they're, they're just such this amazing, godly individual. I would contest that what Paul's doing is saying that everyone needs to have the same standard. Everyone ought to be followers of Christ. Everyone ought to have this attitude of a servant, just like the attitude that Christ has. Now, there is a particular position, and, okay, maybe only, say, the top 10% of a church is ever going to be fully qualified for that. But the goal is that all of us are striving for, aiming for, this level of character that God expects. I want to turn real quick back to the book of Acts. We're going to go to Acts chapter 6. And I think that this is a good, good example of what is being looked for with a deacon. Now, Acts chapter 6, if, if you were pre-studying and you were looking through this, I'm guessing that many of you already went here and looked at this passage because it's, it's almost always run in parallel. Um, this is probably the only example specifically focused on this idea of what is a deacon, how do they function, what do they do in the narratives that we see. Um, but in Acts chapter 6, the, the church had a little bit of an issue, a little bit of a problem going on. It says, uh, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Okay? There's a problem. There's an issue that needs to be addressed. The twelve, the twelve apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. And we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose seven men. And it lists those out. It's Stephen and Philip. And, well, I'm not going to read all of them. It lists them out. They chose them. Verse 6, they brought them before the apostles. They prayed for them. They laid their hands on them. They appointed them to a particular task, a particular job, serving tables. Okay? And so that's, that's where we get a little bit more of a, a picture of what it is that they're supposed to be doing of, of just taking care of basic, normal, everyday needs. <clears throat> Going back to, to 1 Timothy, in, in Acts it gives a list of certain qualifications or expectations. They need to be full of the Spirit. They need to be respectable, upstanding individuals. Here, back in 1 Timothy, same idea is being conveyed with a little bit more detail about it. The next qualification that's listed then, in verse 9, is holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Holding on to, possessing is really what that word means. Um, the idea is that they have something. They have the mystery. Now, Paul often refers to this idea of the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of things that, that hadn't been revealed. And, and there's opportunity for a, a big, long study of what that word means, how it's used. There's a lot that goes on with that. The brief version is that there were certain things that weren't revealed in the past, that when Christ came were revealed. And as a result, they, they had been mysterious. They had been strange and, and unknown. But now God's revealed them. He's made them known to us. And so those who have 
possession of that mystery, those are the ones who, you know, that's, that's one of the requirements or one of the, the necessities to be a deacon. And I think that Paul tries to demystify this mystery. Um, we're actually going to be taking a look a little bit more of that next week in verse 16. Uh, but Matthew chapter 13, we're going to turn there real quick. In Matthew 13, verses 11 through 13, talk a little bit about this as well. Um, and this one is, is actually Christ talking about the mystery. He's been speaking in parables. He's been dealing with some of these things. He, he answers his disciples who came to him and asked him, why, why are you speaking in parables? And he, he answers and says to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall be given more. And he, he shall have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And as we looked at in Ephesians chapter four, or sorry, Ephesians chapter three, Paul is dealing a little bit with this idea of the mystery as well. And that mystery is the gospel. And so Christ is saying, Hey, there there are certain things that that those who aren't followers of Christ, they don't understand. They're not going to get it. To, to some, more has been given. And, and he's particularly dealing with these parables that he's been talking about. But overall, he's talking about this idea that there are certain things that they don't understand. They're not going not gonna to grasp it, not going to get it. But here in First Timothy, Paul expects the deacons, the servants of the church, to grasp the gospel, to understand this idea that, that Christ came as the perfect son of God. He came and he lived a perfect life. He was completely and totally sinless. Now that's, that's strange. That's odd. That's not something that had ever been seen. In fact, in the Old Testament, we find that everyone has sinned. Everyone has failed to achieve the standards that God presents. But Christ came and lived a perfect life. He never sinned. But as a result of that, he was executed as a criminal, as a sinner, as the worst of sinners. Why? So that he could take your sin and my sin upon himself. So that he could pay the penalty for our sins. So that we could be saved. That's a mystery that, that never really made sense. I mean, the, the sacrifice of lambs on a regular basis, the, the priests going into the holy place and, and doing all of that, and yet the mysteries of God, the things that hadn't been revealed, are revealed through his word and through the person of Jesus Christ. And so what, what I would argue, what I would contest, is that one of the main things that Paul's talking about here, they have to be saved. They have to have accepted that gospel of Christ. But more than that, I think that they have to understand some of these spiritual truths. These, this mystery that has been revealed in the word and through Christ, they need to, to possess that. They need to understand that and hold on to that, not, not releasing it and allowing it to go um, and be, be just something that they've heard, but that it's something that becomes part of who they are. Yes, there are things that we still don't know, but God has revealed himself in his scripture and through his son, and we need to hang on to that which God has revealed to us. That's what's expected of 
deacons. So these men must be ones that possess Christ, but it says with a clear conscience. Now that, that idea comes up several times. It actually, uh, we first saw it back in chapter 1, verse 5. Um, and I, I think it's kind of neat. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, it says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And here we see that the deacon needs to be holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I think part of what's happening here is that that Paul is teaching that these men need to hold on to that so that others will get saved, so that they will have this teaching that Paul's been dealing with. Um, And that a requirement for service in the church is to have that, to possess that. It is a high standard that's expected, but it's a basic expectation of all who follow Christ. The next verse, starting off in, in verse 10, then says, let them be first tested. Now, real practically, how would you test someone to see if those things that we've looked at are true? What? Oh, I, th- I thought you were saying something. Okay. They, they should have other opportunities to serve, and then we watch them. Someone over here said observe, I think. That's, that's the idea. We need to watch and see what's happening. And as I was thinking about that, it occurred to me, you know, we actually have men already doing that. How many of you noticed? Now, now today I was watching as the snow was falling and wondering if it would be necessary. How many of you have noticed that we have snowmen? that serve the church, that show up. Okay, a lot, lot, of, lot of folks, they serve the church. They, they take on that responsibility. Now, I, I, I know they love the fact that they hide kind of in the background and they're not pointed out, so I'm not going to start naming them off or anything like that, though the list is right over there if you're interested. <clears throat> and these, these men volunteer to come in and clear the sidewalks so that it's safe and so that we can... They'll, they'll even clear the side ones so that in, in the case of an emergency, they, people can get out and away. And then they, they clear out this area and make sure that people can... That is an act of service. It's a very simple, very basic, very in the background. They're not doing it for glory. Uh, most of them, if I were to start naming them off, would probably be a little bit annoyed with me for pointing them out and bringing them up front. And that's a good thing. That means that they are showing this attitude. And so I think that that that's a great example, just a a basic practical example of how the men can first be tested. We watch them. We observe them. We evaluate them. Then it says, and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now, that phrase is the same one that's used for overseers. So... I think you may have already noticed, I I think that there are two main takeaways. One, the list is very, very similar. The leadership and the servants of the church must be of a very high moral character. Number two, although these lists specifically apply to an official position within the church, I think that they're really just the standards that all people, all followers of Christ ought to be living up to. I get distracted by, by my own PowerPoint sometime. I'm sorry. So, 
Are there, are there any questions so far of these expectations, these requirements, anything of that nature? Okay, uh, we're going to go on then into the next section. And this is one that gets a lot of arguments. It says, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. So, there are three main ideas that come up. And, and if you read any of the commentaries or any, sometimes even study Bibles, anything about this, there, there are three main ideas that come out of this. One is that these women are the wives of the deacons. So that the passage is talking about deacons, their wives then must be this thing. The second one is a second official position that is commonly referred to as deaconesses, and that it's creating another category. And then the third idea is that it's dealing with um, just all women, women in general. Now, the term itself that's used can be either wives or women. The same word in Greek is used, so that argument in and of itself does not give us the answer between those. Um, Just from the word, any of those three can be in view. Uh, For the first one, that idea that it is the wives of the deacons, the structure of it doesn't have a a genitive concept or the idea of of possession or connection. So it doesn't say their wives or wives of or something of that nature. So that makes me kind of question whether that one might be uh, something that's going on that links the women to those particular men. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll set that one to the side just for a moment. The idea of deaconesses as a second official position, well, there's actually a term for that, and Paul doesn't use it here. And so I don't think that that one really fits either. I don't think that Paul's creating a second category of the deaconesses as an official position. Um, additionally, I've, I've read several things that talk about the structure of that one that doesn't set it up to a you know, to make sense or to apply for a secondary position. Um, And then the whole thing is set right in the middle of talking about deacons. So that really kind of makes me wonder about this idea that that it's all the women because it's it's right in the middle. So how then do we deal with this? What's going on? Well, I've kind of argued against all three, but what I think is happening is a little bit of all three, okay? Bear with me for just a moment. The idea is stuck right in the middle of talking about deacons. And the necessity of the wives associated with those deacons is very, very important. My ministry becomes much, much harder if I have a wife that doesn't support and encourage that. Thankfully, I have what I think is an amazing wife. She doesn't want me to brag about her too much, but every now and then I have to. And she enables me. And if she doesn't live up to these standards, it's going to be very, very difficult for me. Well, someone who serves the church, particularly in some of those background positions, if their wife is, is nagging and, and picking on them, and, well, you, you deserve better, you ought to be a higher position, you know, that's not going to be very helpful. And then, again, if, if the deacon finds out certain things and she's a gossip, well, that's not going to be helpful either. And so I, I think that there's an aspect in which this is definitely referring to the idea that, that the deacons, their wives, need to live up to a particular standard. We also find this idea of servants of the church, those who serve. Well, women ought to be serving the church as well. 
When we looked at Acts, we saw that these men were serving the tables. But who was making the food? I'm just guessing, and, and I didn't come up with this idea myself. Somebody else actually mentioned it to me. I'm going to guess that, that the ladies made the food and then get, had the guys pass it out to the widows. And so I think that the, there is a view in which women ought to serve the church, but not as this official position with the term deaconess or anything like that. I think that our, our ladies' ministry is a great example of that. They serve the church in lots of ways. They make all kinds of different things happen, but that's not an official position of deaconess, and it is still under the authority of the leadership of the church and with one of our deacons helping them out, overseeing that, taking charge of it to make sure that everything within the church functions as it ought to. And so ultimately, I would say that there are, there are aspects of all three of those, um, but I, I tend to settle mostly there on that idea that it's referring to women in general who ought to be serving the church, who are part of the church. They have an amazing ministry and an amazing opportunity to serve. But the official position is restricted to men. Um, more than that, in our context, in our church, there is a official position called a deacon. Um, our church constitution, which... If you don't have or haven't read it for a while, we have copies of them back in the, the folders in front of the sound booth. Um, ours gives, uh, Article 4 of the Constitution actually talks about this position of deacon. And it says that the deacon shall act as leaders in the church, serving as assistants to and under the authority of the elders. All deacons shall be in full agreement with and abide by the Constitution of this church. And so as leaders in the church, as we saw back in chapter 2, women would not be eligible for that position because women aren't to be in that authority. So with this section, I think that it is primarily dealing with women in general, that women ought to be servants of the church the same way as anybody else. The wives of deacons are going to be a major influence on how that deacon functions and operates but ladies never, never think that this is a, a low position or unable to be a part of the church because we can't do it without you, for sure. It's just an official position. I don't think that uh, Paul is setting up as deaconess in this, in this category. So what are these women, women of the church, women who serve the church, what ought they to look like? What is their character supposed to be? Well, that's what this uh, verse 11 talks about. First and foremost, not malicious gossips. Now, this is that same idea as not double-tongued, but it's much more specific, and it it's, um, could be a lot ruder if we wanted it to be. That word is the same word as the root for devil, not diablos, not an accuser. And that's the idea that he's saying, don't be like Satan. Don't be accusing people. Don't be maliciously gossiping is why, why it's translated that way. Um, and again, I would say, look at James chapter 3. The way that we are supposed to function with our mouths is very, very important, whether it's for guys or for girls. And you know, generally speaking, ladies are more likely to be accused of gossip, but for both of us, for all of us, we need to be very careful about the way that we use our mouths. Um, there is a, an attacking nature 
within this, the word itself. And so we, the, the women are exhorted not to be accusers or slanderers or gossips uh, in the way that Satan accuses the brethren and accuses us. Instead, or in contrast to that, be temperate. Now, this is the same word that we've seen um, for some of the qualifications for an overseer. Same, same idea, same word. Specifically, it's referring to not being drunk. But beyond that, it's a general mindset and an attitude of being sober, thoughtful in the way that you act and the way that you speak. And then the last one, it says faithful in all things. Now, the idea is filled with faith in all of things. And so I think that there's both the idea of being trustworthy as well as being trusting. I can't tell you the number of times that my wife has reminded me, just trust God. Life can be crazy, challenging, and we go through different things that happen. And, you know, I, I have a tendency to be, well, I can handle about anything. I'll take care of it. I'll deal with it. But my wife so often is, is much more trusting of Christ and, and reminds me of that even, of like, hey, Isaac, have you, have you prayed about it? Have you trusted Christ? Are you, are you willing to do it his way? And so uh, I think trusting Christ, not just for salvation, although that would be part of this idea, that, that she's faithful, that she is a truster of Christ, but not just salvation, but in everyday life, in a constant way. So I would, I would ask you ladies, how are you at that? When life is good, do you rely on Jesus? Generally, that tends to be a little easier unless we get distracted with how easy life is going and then we forget about him. What about when life gets crazy? When the kids are crazy and the husband's not exactly where you want him to be and life's just always going and work and school and this, that, and the other. Do you pause and just trust Christ? Do you look to him for calm? What about when you have a great and amazing husband and he's laser focused on Christ. Are you looking at him or are you looking beyond him to Christ? I'm going to guess that most of the husbands that are good, godly, would rather you be looking past them or through them to Christ because that's who you need to have your faith in. That's who you need to be trusting in. Husbands are going to mess up. Christ never fails us. So are you, are you filled with faith in him? What about if your husband's going the wrong way? Are you trusting Christ even then? Your husband is, is off the deep end or, or straying or doesn't even follow Christ. Well, First Peter chapter 3. I know we've jumped around a lot. We're going to jump a little bit more and then we'll, we will land the plane eventually. First Peter chapter 3. Peter's talking, he, he just got done um, talking about some other things, but he says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the believers, by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. I think part of the idea that's going on here in 1 Timothy is that same concept that when the, the women, when the wives are full of faith, full of trusting Christ, focused on him, 
They have that ability to draw their husbands back, even when their husbands aren't going the right way. So, ladies, you may not be put in a specific structural position within the church, but never downplay the importance of your place in the family of God. As the helpmate that God designed you to be, you can function in amazing ways and accomplish much. When you live out these principles, they're listed here. So women, likewise, or in the same way, desiring to be servants, desiring to live the way that God wants you to, be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate and faithful in all things. We've got two more uh, verses to go and not a lot of time. So back to verse 12. Deacons must be the husbands of one wife. Same, same phrase, same idea as we saw with the overseers. They must be good managers of their children and their own household. Again, that same idea that we saw from the overseers. The way that they deal with their family shows us how they're going to deal with the church. The way they, they deal with their property shows us how they're going to take care of the church. And so we need to make sure and evaluate them based on that. And deacons, servants of the church, are expected to have that level, same idea as what the overseers have, and be good managers of all that they have. Um, again, it's not just the physical, though that's part of it. It's also the people. Um, and so are, are you as a deacon, as a servant of the church, good managers of your children and your household? Verse 13. Why? The section then closes with what I would consider to be a promise for those who are good servants. Um, and, and in reading verse 13, I think of Matthew 25, verse 20, which is where uh, the talents, the parable of the talents, and there are certain servants that have done well, and the master says to them, well done, faithful, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in little things. I will make you faithful in many things. Enter into the joy of your master. I think that's the same idea that's, that's going on here in verse 13. It says, For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That high standing is, is a positional. It's like standing up on stairs. What popped to my mind is, if you've ever watched the Olympics, when they stand on those, the tiered stages, whether it's first, second, or third, any of those is a high position. It's a good position, a good standing. And so if you have done good, done well as a deacon, God has promised a good standing. Now, I don't necessarily think you'll get a gold, silver, or bronze, but that idea still comes into play. But more than that, you'll have confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That's a boldness. That's, that's more than just um, something that, that's in your mind, though it conveys that idea of a good mindset. It's also the ability to proclaim the gospel and the ability to serve well and the ability, and that's through Christ. In reading that, I think we need to go back to Acts chapter 6. We already looked at Acts 6, and we're, we're going to, Take a look at this, and, and we're going to close with it. We looked at Acts 6 and this idea of selecting the deacons. And they, were, they were selected. They were put into specific position, given specific jobs. 
And the rest of, of chapter 6 kind of deals with that a little bit. It focuses in on, on what they're doing and on Stephen himself. In verse 8 it says, Stephen was full of grace and power and performing great wonders and signs among the people. But then something bad happens. He ends up getting hauled in front of the ruling council. He gets drug in front of them in verse six, or sorry, chapter six, verse twelve, and then in chapter seven, it deals with his interactions with them. And Stephen has boldness as he presents the gospel, and he gives a review of the Old Testament and the expectation of a Messiah, the arrival of a Messiah, the implications of that, and ultimately the guilt of all men. And we're going to go skipping up to Acts chapter 7 and verse 54. And as I was was reading this and studying this and, and thinking about it, I went to this passage and I got thinking about what is this idea of obtaining for yourself a good standing and a great confidence that is in the faith in Christ Jesus. And I got reading through this and I, I got to tell you, I sat at my desk and just wept with this. So if, if I break up while I'm reading it, I'm sorry. But I want you to catch this picture of what happens with Stephen. You guys probably already know the story. He, he was drugged before the council and they're asking him questions and this would be a difficult thing to stand up as, as you know, just some guy standing up in front of the ruling council, giving an answer. Picking it up in verse 54 of chapter 7. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and covered their ears, and rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen. And he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. What is it to be a good deacon, to be a good servant of the church? I think Stephen's the perfect example. And he gets run out of town. And he gets executed. He gets stoned to death. But what's his attitude? What's his heart? His heart says, God, don't hold this against them. Forgive them for this. But I think this idea of receiving a good standing, he looks up and he sees Jesus standing beside the Father. And I, I think that there is some stuff, some, some stuff going on in that that's really cool. We're not going to dig into all of that. But he has a promise that Christ is going to receive him. Even though he's being stoned to death, Stephen recognizes God's got a greater purpose in this. Guys, men, 
Is that our attitude? Is that our heart? Is that our desire? When we serve, when we serve the church, are we willing to have that happen to us? This is just a guy who is serving tables, who is set aside by the church to help the widows. But because he served well, he understood the things that the apostles taught. He made that a part of who he was. And he stood in front of, stood before the rulers of that country and gave the gospel to them. And was executed for it. But there was a little cool thing hidden in there. I don't think it's hidden, but one of the young men who was witness against him laid their, or all, all of the people laid their robes at this young man, one of the young men that was there, Saul. I don't know exactly how, but I have to expect that somehow the death of Stephen had an impact on Saul. And he remembered that. So men, all of us, do we have that attitude? Are we willing to be Stephen, executed for serving the church? May we be that kind of a servant. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us the ability to serve you. We don't deserve that. And yet, you value servants. You say that to be first, to be great, we must serve. So Lord, I do pray that you would help each of us to have that attitude, have that mindset, that desire. Lord, help us to live up to these expectations. It's a, it's a challenging expectation. It's a high standard that you have for your servants. Help us to be men and women who are of high moral character, who meet these expectations and requirements. But Lord, more than that, help us to have the attitude that we saw in Stephen of a love for people and a willingness no matter what to declare the truth so that people can hear the gospel And Lord, even if that puts us in a position where we can be executed for following you, help us to be bold and willing. Because God, you can use that, even as we we see with Voice of the Monitors, you can use it in the world around us today in ways to spread the gospel even further. So Lord, help us to be good servants for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.